Well, good morning, Northbrook. Great to see all your smiling faces out there. This weekend, we are going to head to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, chapters 2, 4, and 6. While you're turning there, let's just take a moment and uh, quiet our hearts, quiet our minds. Uh, Maybe you've come uh, today with with a need or a desire or something you'd like God to do for you. Let's just take a moment and offer all those up, up to him. Help us, O God, to be aware of your presence is all around. We offer up to you our needs, our requests, our desires, our hopes. We offer up to you the next week. We cast our cares upon you, for you care for us. And now as we open up the scriptures, would you help us to hear and receive and apply your word to our lives so that we can become a bit more like you. We ask this in the great name of Christ. Amen. So I don't really like it when people push back on me. I don't like it when people oppose me. I I don't like it when I have a brilliant idea, because all my ideas are brilliant, right? I don't like it when I have a brilliant idea and I'm challenged. And I bet if you're being honest, you don't really like it either. And yet resistance, pushback, and challenge can be a good thing. Helps us to see things more clearly. There have been many in my life that have helped me from making really poor decisions because they pushed back a little bit. Challenge can help you see things more clearly. We all have blind spots. Challenge can help us become more creative. So in many ways, challenge, opposition, and resistance can be a good thing. And yet, if, if you're a leader in any capacity, you will be challenged, you will be opposed in not-so-good ways, ways that can disrupt you and take your eyes off of what is actually important. Last week, I made the argument that I think we're all leaders. John Maxwell defines leadership as influence. Leadership is influence. Nothing more, nothing less. So if you're influencing someone, then you're, you're leading. As followers of Christ... The way that we influence and the way that we lead, it's just, it's different. If you lead a company, the way that you lead your employees is different. If you're in any kind of public role, the way that you lead is different. And if you're a parent, like if you're a parent, you're a leader. Because there are some little lives that that are following you. And as a parent, you can expect opposition. You can expect pushback. It is the specialty of children. One of my children, this is probably going to be way too much, but I'm going to to 
go here anyway. You can write a note if you want, just sign it. Um, one of my children, when they were smaller, I'm not going to name them, but you've got about a 50-50% chance of guessing which one it was. When they were small, like three or four years old, that's about the time you're starting to teach healthy habits, good hygiene. And this child of mine, they would incessantly pick their nose in public. And it's gross, right? I mean, I think we can all agree. But what made it worse is, you know, they did what little kids sometimes do, and they'd eat it. And it's just, you know, I know, it's too much, I know. I know, it's too much. And so we're teaching our kids, don't do that. And I remember one specific occasion, we were in public, and they picked their nose, and I said, don't you dare eat that. And they held it out like this. I said, don't you dare. And this is what they did. I promise you can verify it with my wife. They went. (laughs) Defiance. Opposition. Raising children is a good thing. Just because something's good doesn't mean it's easy. That goes for anything. When we do good things in our world, in Jesus' name, though it's good, it may not be easy. When someone resists you or opposes you, it can cause you to question yourself, lose a part of your identity, maybe even even your calling. There's a series of books written by the author Robert Ludlum. He wrote a series of novels around a character named Jason Bourne, which were also made into a movie, into a series of films. Jason Bourne in these novels was a CIA assassin. And in the first book, which was also the first movie, uh, the scene opens with Jason Bourne floating in the ocean because he's been shot. And as a fishing boat passes by, they see the light on his life vest blinking. And so they haul him out of the water, bring him on deck, and they offer medical care. And when he wakes up, Jason Bourne has no idea who he is. Doesn't know his place, his mission, his identity, nothing. He has amnesia. Can you imagine not being able to remember anything about your life, including your name, and who you are. You know, the closest I've ever had to that kind of experience was years ago. I'd come back from a trip to India and I was severely jet lagged. And I went to bed that evening, finally fell asleep. And when I fell asleep, it was a deep sleep. When I woke up, I was standing. I don't know, remember, I don't remember getting up and standing. It was pitch black. I couldn't see anything. But I couldn't remember what day it was where I was, and for just a small moment, it's almost as if I couldn't remember who I was. Let me tell you, it was terrifying. And then I finally found a light, flipped the light on, and kind of woke up, and I realized, oh yeah, okay, I, I know who I am. It's good. All right, good. Now, in, in the Jason Bourne series, there's a series of scenes in the first book in which He gets these glimpses of who he is. For instance, he's sitting in a diner eating and he realizes that as he looks outside, he's memorized every license plate of every car, but he doesn't know how he did it or why he did it. Another scene opens where he's 
he's walking down the street and he hears a foreign language being spoken and he realizes he knows the language but he doesn't know how he knows it or why he knows it. Another scene, he's attacked and he fights back and he wins but he doesn't know why he knows how to, to fight so well. As a follower of Christ, we can forget who we are, get distracted from what's actually important, real, and eternal. The Old Testament book of Nehemiah begins in chapter 1 with a man who, in some ways, has forgotten who he is. Not in an amnesia kind of way, but more in a distracted kind of way. He, he forgets that his people, the Jewish nation, are suffering that they are in Jerusalem, a city that's been completely destroyed. Now he doesn't, it's not like he doesn't know what happened. He just, it's kind of like this. I think we all know that around the world right now, there are people that live in dire poverty, that are starving. We we all know that to be true. But we just don't think about it a lot. At least most of us don't, if we're honest. Because we're consumed with our, our lives. But every once in a while, something jostles us and we remember. Maybe we see a commercial on television for a, a humanitarian organization that's helping the poor. Or maybe you go on a mission trip and you see poverty for the first time and you, you realize, oh yeah, there are people that are, are really struggling. I think Nehemiah has that kind of forgetting. And so God's going to shake him up a little bit. Nehemiah is going to be used by God to lead in an extraordinary way in the midst of an impossible situation. Now, if you weren't here last week, just a quick history lesson. In the year 587 BC, a king named Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem, completely destroyed it, leveled the walls of Jerusalem, destroyed everything, killed most of the Jews, and those that were left, he took back as captives to Babylon where they lived in in exile. So for 150 years, the city of Jerusalem lay in open shame as its walls were completely crumbled and destroyed, left defenseless. Now, after some period of time, some Jews had returned to Jerusalem. There was a remnant that that had arrived, and they were living in open shame because their city was destroyed and left undefended because of this wall. And so Nehemiah is going to be used by God, called by God, to go and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, which is not just an architectural project, but it's part of their religious identity. Now, Nehemiah was a bit distracted up until this point because he's occupied with his life as a cupbearer. Nehemiah is a descendant of the Jews that were taken into captivity in Babylon. He was born there and he never left. He worked his way through the system and became a high-ranking official in King Xerxes' world. He became the cupbearer to the most powerful king alive. Now, the cupbearer was one of the most trusted officials, uh, so much so that they were the ones that would bring the king their wine, that's cupbearer, and they would take a sip first just to make sure it wasn't poisoned. Because if it was poisoned, they would die rather than the king, which, you know, don't leave that part out of the job description. That's an important thing to remember. There are, are some risks with this job, but it comes with a lot of prestige, a lot of wealth, and a lot of opportunity. And so one day as he's serving as cupbearer to the king, he gets a report that Jerusalem is in fact still in shambles and that his people are in distress. And when he hears it, 
It's as if he's shaken a little bit. And he sits for four months. And he weeps. And he prays. And he fasts. See, between Nehemiah chapter 1 and Nehemiah chapter 2, four months have passed. Nehemiah gets up from his praying, his weeping, his fasting, his mourning, and he says, someone needs to go and rebuild that wall. So now we come to Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what is it that you want? That's a clarifying question. What do you want? When we look past all of the surface level distractions of everyday living, what is it that we actually want deep in our heart? I mean, Nehemiah knew exactly what he wanted because he'd been praying about it for four months. Praying, thinking, reflecting, and fasting. And so... He replies to the king, he said, I was very much afraid, but I said, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And Nehemiah goes through a series of, of, of emotions and realities in this story. He hears about the city of Jerusalem and his people and he weeps. There's this emotional response. And then he fasts and prays for, for four months. This is a spiritual response. But then he acts. Because he has clarity, he acts. And he takes a practical yet risky response. Now, he took a huge risk because in Nehemiah's day, You were not permitted. It was, in fact, illegal to walk into the presence of the king with a sad face, punishable by death. You were not allowed to go in with a frown, with anything but a smile and a skip in your step. And Nehemiah is afraid because the king knows he's sad, but he's willing to take the risk, risk it all, risk his life. Because he was awakened to who he actually was and what needed to be done. I mean, do I have that kind of clarity? That I know who I am. That I'm really willing to risk anything. I mean, sometimes we don't know how to answer the question, what do I want? We don't have that kind of clarity. And so as a result, we just go with whatever the next popular thing is or whatever... Wherever the tides take us, that's where we go. Or we go to the exact opposite way. We become so controlling. We become so controlling, we force things to happen almost as if we think we are in fact God himself. When I was in college, I had a a professor. And every once in a while, he would start class by saying, Students! There are two great truths of the universe. Truth number one, there is a God. Truth number two, you're not him. Glad we got that out of the way. 
Yet sometimes I act like I think I'm, I'm him. I don't trust him, so I gotta make it happen for myself. Or other times we put so much weight on our vocation, what it is that we do, that we mistake it for who we are. Vocationally, I'm a pastor, it's my job, it's what I do, and I love it. But it's not my identity. My identity is I'm a follower of Christ, beloved by God. That's who I am. The book of Romans chapter 1, verse 7, I love how the Apostle Paul opens this letter. He says, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his people. If I were writing a letter, I could start it, to all who are in Richfield, who are loved by God, called to be his people. I mean, there may come a day when I'm no longer a pastor, but I'll still be loved by God and called to be his. Every once in a while, we need a jolt to remind us who we are, that we are in fact the beloved of God. Yes, Nehemiah vocationally was a cupbearer, a high-ranking government official trusted by the king, but that was not his identity. His identity was beloved by God, called to be his, and as a Jew, part of God's chosen people, that identity eclipsed his vocation as cupbearer. He was willing to risk everything to go on behalf of God for the sake of his people. And so he's going to go, he's going to take action, and he asks the king for two things. The first thing he asks the king for is some time off, because building a wall takes time. And so when he asks the king for time off, the king essentially says, how much time are you going to need? And Nehemiah says, about 12 years. Imagine that conversation. It's a big wall. And then he goes on with his second request. I'm going to be gone 12 years. I'm going to go and rebuild the wall of my people. And by the way, would you pay for it? And the king says yes to both. The same king who had put a halt to the rebuilding of Jerusalem the last time the Jews tried to rebuild it, now gave Nehemiah 12 years off and he's paying for it. That's nothing other than divine favor. I mean, Nehemiah, beloved of God, will go and rebuild the wall because it was part of God's plan for his life. So he goes and he faces the impossible. Nehemiah chapter two. So I went to Jerusalem. Verse 11, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no other mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to pass to get through. So I went up the valley by the night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because I had yet, as of yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God, 
on me and what the king said to me. And they replied, let's start building. So they began this good work. And though it was a good work, it wasn't easy. Good work is rarely easy. So when things get hard, how quickly do we get discouraged? I mean, Nehemiah had a lot lot of reasons to get discouraged. Not only was the city almost impossibly destroyed, but then there were some people that opposed what he was doing. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 19, But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? So these two neighboring government officials show up, Sanballat, who's the governor of Samaria, a nearby city, and Tobiah, another high-ranking government official, opposed the rebuilding of Jerusalem because if the city is rebuilt, they had something to lose in the form of both money and power. And so they resist what Nehemiah is doing, first by making an accusation against him. They accuse him of treason. Are you rebelling against the king? That comes with the death penalty. I mean, most of the time, if you're doing something good and someone opposes you, it's because they have something to lose. Don't take the bait. A while back, I I received an email from an individual. It wasn't very nice. What they said wasn't true or accurate. And like Nehemiah, I had a bit of an emotional response to it. And so I penned a rebuttal that was eloquent. Its language was superb, and it was equally as kind of jerky and mean, too. But before I hit send, I said, maybe I should have someone read this first. And so I asked one of our pastors to come in and read what I wrote, and they go, huh, you could send that. But I would encourage you, Mike, don't take the bait. Those are good words. Nehemiah when he was accused of treason, he didn't take the bait. He wasn't going to get into it because what he was doing was too important to get distracted with an argument with them. And how often do we take the bait? How much time and emotional energy do we squander in frivolous arguments that will never go anywhere, losing sight of what's actually important? Well, it didn't work with Nehemiah, so when that didn't work, they moved to ridicule. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they're building, even if a fox climbing on it would break down their wall of stones. Ha, ha, ha. You ever had someone make fun of you? Make fun of something you did? Something you created? A decision you made? You ever had someone make fun of you because of what you believe? Yeah, why do you believe in that fairy tale God anyway? And no one likes being mocked. I'm sure Nehemiah didn't like it. But instead of taking it personally, he prayed and he moved forward. 
Verse 4, he prays, hear us, O God, for we are despised. So turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. They prayed and they got to work. See, when, as long as when you're mocked or ridiculed, you just need to pray and get to work. When that didn't work, when accusations didn't work, when ridicule didn't work, then they moved to threats. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the people of Ashad heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed, they were angry and they plotted to come together and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble for us. What do you do when you're threatened? Because that's a whole nother level. Well, Nehemiah remembered the Lord and he was forward-looking. He looked to the future. Nehemiah 4.9. But we prayed to our God and we posted a guard. That's good advice. We prayed, but we also posted a guard. Because we're rational thinking human beings. We prayed to God, we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords and their spears and their bows. And after looking things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember the Lord. Do we get spiritual amnesia? Things seem dire and impossible and we forget the Lord? Because sometimes I do. Nehemiah's challenges, but remember the Lord. I think one of the great ways we can remember the Lord is by tucking his word in our heart. By taking the scriptures and committing some of them to mind so that when things get challenging, we can call them, recall them to our mind when we need them. Now, I'm not a good memorizer, so it's always been an excuse of mine not to memorize parts of the Bible because I'm just not good at memorizing things. But then I realized I've memorized the lines from a lot of the films that I like so much so that I can quote them to you while I'm watching them. Like I can quote almost word for word The Sandlot, Napoleon Dynamite, and Nacho Libre. I've seen them so many times. I can sit there. I, I, could, I could fill in for Jack Black. I know that. Some of those movies so well. So that excuse is gone. The psalmist writes, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So there are some passages I'm working on right now. Committing them to my mind so that I can recall them when I need them. Colossians chapter 3 verse 3 is a favorite of mine. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Psalm 91 is a psalm of comfort. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High 
will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. When I have those scriptures tucked in my heart, I can, I can be forward-looking, remembering that it's not always going to be like this because I'm pursuing a marvelous future. Well, accusation didn't work, ridicule didn't work, threats didn't work, so they moved to their last resort, negotiation. Nehemiah 6. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ano. So they wanted Nehemiah to compromise, but Nehemiah stayed resilient. Verse 2, but they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project. I'm carrying on a great work and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? I'm not going to stop this great work and go and argue and negotiate and compromise with you. Nehemiah had resilience, which is the human capacity to meet adversity and live fully within it. I'm going to ask our worship team to come. Some of us, I think, are not living or leading fully because we are mentally held hostage to the opposition and resistance of others. See, as Christians, the way that we lead is different, and it begins with our identity in Christ. This is what Jesus said, John chapter 15. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Good work that will last. So there's some of us, maybe maybe you've been praying about something for a long time. Maybe God has put something in your heart for you to do. And you've been praying about it a long time, but you've, you've never taken a step. Maybe because you've experienced opposition. People have said, why would you do that? So you've just prayed about it. Maybe it's time to take one step forward and trust and do something about it. For others of us, maybe we've wasted a lot of time because we keep taking the bait and we get drawn into these worthless, pointless, heated arguments that zap all of our emotional energy. Maybe this week is a new week to stop taking the bait and just walk away from those silly, pointless arguments. Or maybe, maybe this week is a great time to choose a few passages from the scriptures and commit them to our heart and mind so that we can recall call them when we need them. So this morning, God, I pray for us all. I, I ask you, oh God, that you would that you would help us Remember who we are, that our identity is in Christ. And when we experience opposition because of our faith or what you've put in our heart to do, remind us that just because it's good doesn't mean it's going to be easy. You've called us to do good work, to bear good fruit. And so, God, would you help us? Would you walk with us?
and remind us of who we are. Loved by God. Amen.